Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, and this is going to be one of those episodes where I just talk and tell you stories. And the theme for this week is failure, because throughout your career, you're not always going to work on good shows. You're not always going to write great movies. There's going to be some dogs. How do you deal with that? And uh, in my career, along with my partner, David Isaacs, we have had a couple of uh, shows and movies that we don't necessarily put at the top of our resumes. Aftermash being one, the movie Mannequin 2 being another, and I'm going to discuss those and kind of how you cope with being on bad shows. Also, some great stories along the way, and who knows, maybe a tip or two. Failure, this week on Hollywood and Levine. It's easy to get on here and talk about the successful shows that I worked on, like MASH and Cheers. Ah, but what about the failures? We all have them in all of our closets. There's a couple of bombs here and there. And for me and my partner, David Isaacs, I would have to say Aftermash would qualify. On the other hand, and I know I make fun of Aftermash an awful lot on my blog, but I have to say, in reality, I had an awful lot of fun on Aftermash. And here's one of the reasons why. Larry Gelbart. And by the way, during this section, I'm going to talk about uh, Aftermash and why it was not successful. And then like a great story on how we got back at 20th Century Fox. Anyway, getting back to Larry Gelbart, he is like the Mozart of television comedy writers. He wrote a little movie called Tootsie. He wrote Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Oh God, City of Angels, won a bunch of Tonys, also wrote the first four seasons of MASH, and a truly great guy. Well, when David and I were on MASH, we started season five, so we never actually got a chance to work with Larry Gelbart before, and when he called and handpicked us and said he wanted us to work with him on the sequel to MASH, well, you know, you got to figure, wow, that's pretty cool. Sandy Koufax just called and said, hey, guys, how'd you like me to teach you how to pitch? So 1983, David and I signed aboard to do Aftermash. And the premise for Aftermash was, and this was comic gold, the Korean War was over, and now everybody went home, and this was set in a Veterans Administration hospital in 1953. Comedy gold! 
and it starred three members of the MASH cast. But unfortunately, it was the three second bananas. And they were very good actors, Harry Morgan, Bill Christopher, and Jamie Farr. They were wonderful actors, and they were wonderful on MASH. And they were wonderful on Aftermath, too, but neither of them had the gravitas to really carry a series on his own. And so that's kind of what we were left with. And Larry wrote the pilot and worked with us the first season. And it was always tough finding stories. I mean, what are you going to do about a veterans hospital (laughs) in Missouri in 1953? Plus, the rest of the cast, uh, great. Well, I, I will say this, though. We had Roz Chow, who also was a holdover from MASH. She played Klinger's wife, and she is funny and charming and cute, and we should have done the show around her. But other than Roz Chow, the other people that we surrounded Harry and Bill and Jamie with were not really that strong. In fact, I remember when we were casting, there was a part for like an intern, and Martin Short came in to read. And Martin Short, this was very early in his career, I think. He maybe had done SCTV, not really sure about the timeline. But he came in to read, and he was really funny. And we looked at each other, and we said, okay, this guy is great, but I don't know, he belongs in a different show. And this is the only time we've ever done this. We went up to Martin Short, and we said, look, If you want this part, it's yours. You got it. You're terrific. On the other hand, we think you can do better. We think there are probably other opportunities where you can showcase your abilities better than this character and this situation. And he said, okay, he appreciated that and then moved on to other things. And I think it was a wise choice on his part. So the show premieres in September of 1983 and gets a 50 share. Holy shit, a 50 share. Imagine that today. Super Bowls don't get 50 shares today. The Academy Awards don't get anywhere near 50 shares today. But we got a 50 share. And by the end of season one... We got a 19 share. (laughs) It gives you some indication of how America just loved Aftermath. Unbelievably, however, CBS picked us up and gave us a second season. I guess a 19 share in 1983 today is like a 32 share. I mean, when you consider the shows today are getting picked up with one shares, then yeah, okay, a 19 share roll the dice, it's worth another season. Well, we tried very hard to make mid-course corrections. And what we felt we needed to do was to, again, surround our core cast of Harry, Jamie, and Bill with characters who could drive a series. So we came up with a character that was a an angry doctor. He was a very good doctor, but he was very angry. And we hired David Aykroyd. And that was going to be kind of our Alan Alda of the show. And David was really good. He was great. It's just uh, too little, too late. 
I also remember at one point we wanted to hire a woman psychiatrist, and so we hired Wendy Gerard, who was also excellent in the role, but again, the horse and the cow and everybody was out of the barn by that time. But like I said, I had a good time doing it, especially the first year when Larry was there. To be rewriting with Larry Gelbart was amazing. And here's the other thing about Larry Gelbart. You write a script, you turn it in to the producers, and you hold your breath, waiting to see what the reaction is. And sometimes you can go two days, three days, four days before you get any feedback. Well, we would give Larry our new draft at the end of the day, 5.30 in the afternoon. He'd say, thank you, guys. Get in his car, drive home. An hour later, he called you up at home to tell you how much he loved the script. And when a guy does that, you're ready to walk through walls for him. That was Larry Gelbart, and among the many things we learned from him was how to be a good showrunner and how to treat other writers. And throughout the rest of our career, when we were showrunners and our staff would give us their first drafts, we would read it immediately and we would call them at home that night. That just stems from Larry Gelbart. So the show gets canceled, and here is a a little bit of karma. The show gets canceled halfway through season two, and we had made, I think, 10 episodes. We had three more ready to go, including the first one up was supposed to be a script that David and I had written, and it was already written and already in Mimeo, meaning it was a published script with the 20th Century Fox logo on it. It was ready to film. So we get a call from Harris Cattleman, who was the president of the TV division at the time. This is about 10 o'clock in the morning. And he says, I have bad news, guys. CBS canceled the show. By that time, we were thrilled. Uh, I got to tell you, we were just so happy to be out from under it because it was just so frustrating constantly having to do damage control and fix this and add this character and all. So even though it was a good experience, uh, by the time it was over, we were ready to leave. But he said to us, which was very nice, we would love you guys to still be part of the 20th Century Fox family. We would like to make a development deal with you for future development and just keep you here on the lot. And we said, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Obviously, this is a shock and we're going to need some time to figure out what it is that we want to do next. But that's great to know. Thank you so much. We enjoyed working with you on this. We spent several years there with... After MASH, we spent four years on MASH. We also spent a year with a development deal. So we had spent an awful lot of time on the 20th Century Fox lot. An hour later, we get a call from Business Affairs. They said, we're not paying you for the upcoming script. I said, well, you have to pay us. And they said, no, we don't. And I said, well, then I'm going to go to the Writers Guild. And they said, fine, go to the Writers Guild. So I did. I picked up the phone. I called the Writers Guild. I explained the situation. They said, fine, they'll get back to me. A half hour later, that same business affairs person called and said, okay, God damn it, we'll pay you for the script. I said, thank you very much. And then they said, you have an hour to get off the lot. 
clear out your desk, clear out your office, get the hell out. Now, this is like 90 minutes after the president of the TV division said he wanted to make us an overall deal to keep us in the 20th Century Fox family. Get out. So, well, we did. We packed up all of our stuff and threw it in the back seat of our cars and off we went. Now it's about two months later and we're doing other things and we get offered the opportunity to do a rewrite of the motion picture Jewel of the Nile, which was the sequel to Romancing the Stone. Michael Douglas was the producer. They sent us the script We liked it. We had some thoughts on what we wanted to do. And so we went to the 20th Century Fox lot, our old friend, the 20th Century Fox lot, and we met with Michael Douglas and discussed the script. And he was very happy with the direction that we wanted to take it. And he said, great, let's go forward. One of the things that we always have in our contracts, because at the time, the way David and I used to write is we would dictate the script to a writer's assistant who had to know shorthand. So we always asked for an office and a secretary. Usually that was not a problem. And Fox was happy to accommodate. But we said to Michael Douglas, we want a specific office. Because when we went back on the 20th Century Fox lot, we, uh, we came a little early before the Michael Douglas meeting, and we were curious to see just who was in our office. So we walked over to our office, which is in the old writer's building, which now is more apropos to me than it was back then, and the office was empty. There was nobody there. So they chased us out in one hour, and yet nobody had occupied the office since. So now we're talking to Michael Douglas, and I said, we have a specific request. We want to be in Old Writers Building Room 102. And he said, why? And I explained the circumstances. Michael, who's a great street fighter, loved that story and said, great. So he calls up somebody in the lot, you know, I, I don't know, Uh, some studio relations or human affairs or whatever they call those things, and says, uh, yes, he wants Office 102 in the old writer's building for uh, Ken Levine and David Isaacs. And they said, uh, well, that's a TV office, and you're only entitled to movie offices. And Michael, God love him, just started screaming on the phone, like, do you know how much money I have made for this studio? God damn it, I want that office. And sure enough, they said, okay, fine, yes, fine. And that same business affairs person who threw us out had to then call us back and go, hi, guys, Uh, we should probably meet and talk about uh, what furniture you need, et cetera, et cetera. It was very nice to write Jewel of the Nile back in our old office. So those are a couple of Aftermash stories. I look back at Aftermash and, you know, it was not a great comedy, but hey, today we would call it a dramedy and we would probably be nominated for something. And while we're on the subject of failures, it's become a cult classic. Rarely does a decade go by without someone asking me about Mannequin 2. So, 
For all you Man 2 fans, that's what it's known as in film schools. There's many graduate programs that have courses just devoted to it. Here is how me and David Isaacs came to have our names on this cinematic classic. We did an extensive rewrite on Mannequin 1, working for a couple of really swell guys. Bruce McNall, who was the former owner of the L.A. Kings and later sentenced to 70 months in federal prison, and David Beagleman, who as the president of Columbia Pictures was caught forging bogus expense checks as Cliff Robertson. Well, they wanted to pay us to rewrite this movie in TVs. But our agent, God love him, insisted on money. I mean, he gets his 10%, right? And what's 10% of a television set, the speakers? So we did the rewrite in two weeks. And we actually had a lot of fun with it. And we did receive our payment in U.S. currency. It was on this particular rewrite, by the way, that we instituted what David and I called the 24-second logic clock. We were not going to get bogged down discussing whether a mannequin would do this or that. So we would have like a 24-second debate, picked a course of action, and just went with it. Anyway, Mannequin, of course, was a huge hit. And there's a lot of our lines that are still in that movie. And it was a big enough hit to warrant Mannequin 2. So again, we got a call to rewrite it. David Beagleman called me and he said, yeah, we want you guys to rewrite this for luck. And he was thrilled. And we said, fine, but we'd like more lucky bucks. And this time they were willing to throw in a VCR and a camcorder, but no, again, we insisted on money. So we got this script and, oh, Jesus Christ, it was even worse than the first one. And we did our best. Again, we only had a couple of weeks to do it. We turned it in. We ran immediately to the bank to cash our checks, and then forgot about it. Well, some months later, we received the shooting script, further revised from ours. Other writers were brought on, and we saw the proposed credits. Well, first of all, to our horror, the script was even worse, and the studio was giving us shared credit. Oh, man, we we called our agent, and we said, do do we even want credit on this stink burger? And he said, yeah, you really do, because we would then be entitled to royalties. Okay, then. Well, anytime there is more than the original writer listed on the proposed credits, the matter automatically goes to the WGA for arbitration. Now, I've been involved on both sides of the aisle, petitioning and arbitrating. And each writer drafts a statement pleading his case. And these are always long, impassioned pleas, how the idea came from their own lives and all of the suffering that they did and how if they lost it, this would be a miscarriage of justice on the scale of O.J. Simpson. Well, we certainly, in good conscience, could write something like that. So here's what we wrote instead. To whom it may concern, according to the bylaws set forth by the WGA credits manual, we believe the credits should stand as proposed. Thank you. That's it. We won. Our names are on that movie. 
And when the movie finally came out, when it was finally released or escaped, um, I was announcing for the Baltimore Orioles, and we had an off day in Detroit. So I went to see the movie at a big multiplex theater, probably sat 400, 500 people, or six people in the audience, counting me. Well, the movie went on to make nothing. As I mentioned, Bruce McNall went to federal prison. David Beagleman eventually killed himself. The film aired on a major network and has been showing for years on cable channels. It still shows up. Our agent was right. There were royalties, and we were entitled to them. We have yet to see a penny. We should have taken the TV. At least we could sell that on eBay. And that'll do it for this week of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks to Adam Butler and Howard Hoffman. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, I have an email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can always follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. And I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends because I want to get as many listeners as Mark Marin. And at the moment, I'm, I'm shy a few. So uh, if you could help me out, I would appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.